you know. Good afternoon. We're picking up uh, with the Gospel of John that we left off with in December. And we're in the first chapter still. We're going to be picking up with uh, verses 29 to 34. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. This is John 1, starting in verse 29. And on the next day he saw Jesus come to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. I did not know him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed with the reading of your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in today's verses, we're going to be looking at day two in the narrative with John the Baptist his witness to a gathered crowd with the message, look to the Messiah. Brad took us through day one in December with John the Baptist's witness to the priests and Levites, we remember, that were sent out from the Pharisees. And that message was, the Messiah is here. And then next week, we're going to get to day three with the baptizer continuing his message to Andrew and John. And that message is going to be, follow the Messiah. So day one is, he is here. Day two is look to the Messiah, behold the Messiah. And then day three is follow the Messiah. Now, as we look at the, we also see the gospel writer, we see there's two critical questions in this first chapter concerning Jesus Christ. The first is to answer the seminal question, who is Jesus Christ? The identity of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, was vital 2,000 years ago. And it is vital today because your answer to this question, to the true identity of the most consequential person in history, is the most important answer you will ever give to any, any question in your life. Because if he is who Scripture says he is, with the witness of John the Baptist and the Gospel writer John, this truth changes everything. The implications of this truth should change your entire paradigm. Why? Because our entire destiny, our eternal destiny that follows this short vapor of a life here on earth rides on our answer. The same question was posed to Simon Peter, remember, by Christ himself when he said, but who do you say that I am? And there's only two options here. He's either crazy and or a liar, or he is who the testimony says he is. He is God in the flesh. So he's either a total fraud or he is God incarnate. There's no middle ground. Jesus Christ's deity is manifest through his work and his witness all through Scripture. Not simply as a good teacher, not simply as a good prophet, not simply as a good priest, not simply as a good king, although he is all those things, but that he is God, he is the great I Am, he is Yahweh, the second member of the Trinity. 
This is, it's at this point, that is the point of John's prologue to this gospel, to declare his deity, and that's how he begins the prologue. In verse 1, with Jesus Christ in the beginning with God, and Jesus Christ as God. He created all things. He is the true light of the world. He is the true life of the world. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Then the prologue ends in verse 18 with Jesus being the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father and has explained him. The problem is the world does not believe this. And even worse, many so-called Christians don't believe that Jesus Christ is in fact God. But that is why John wrote this gospel. So that we may believe his true identity and by believing have life in his name. So he starts with declaring the majesty, the deity of Christ to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? Then he transitions to the greatest witness of Jesus Christ who ever lived, John the Baptist, the greatest man born of woman. So it is that transition from the deity of Christ to the witness of Christ that we're going to take up with in our verses today as we again focus on John the Baptist's witness. John the Baptist, John the Baptist, his whole life was lived for this brief moment on the stage of human history, not to preach the law of Moses, not to preach ethics, not to preach how to live, but to clear the way for the king, to clear the way for the Messiah, declaring first that the Messiah is here, and then look to the Messiah, who is the Son of God, and then follow the Messiah. So John's entire life was to be the forerunner of the coming Messiah, the herald to the coming king. When he went public with his ministry, he was to be that bridge, connecting the law and the prophets of the Old Testament to the euangelion of the New Testament. He was to be the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament preachers with one goal, and that's pointing to the coming Messiah. So day one, the contingent was sent out, you remember that, from the Pharisees, to question him, to investigate him. Who is this wild man in the wilderness, wearing camel's hair, with sticky fingers and a pocket full of bugs? Beginning his ministry as one man, all alone in the Judean wilderness, baptizing hundreds, even thousands, eventually developing his own movement, developing his own ministry with people pouring out of Jerusalem to Bethany beyond the Jordan to be baptized by him. This is what panicked the entrenched Jewish authorities. Here we have the only prophet in Israel and the only prophet in Israel for the last 400 years. And he's a man of God from a well-known priestly family, a respected family, the family of Zechariah. Yet he thrived outside of their authority. He thrived outside of their religious system. And worse yet, more threatening, he was outside of their powerful control. This man was beloved by the people, but he was a danger to the Jewish authorities, just like Jesus Christ would later be a danger to the Jewish authorities. So they drilled down on John the Baptist, and he deflects with negative denials. Are you the Messiah? I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. John, in his humility, deflects away from himself so he could point them to the Messiah. 
as a voice, as the witness, as the prophet of God. In all four of the Gospels, John the Baptist declares himself as the voice of Isaiah 40, a voice calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist's life in the wilderness reveals a backwater hermit. He had no position. He had no political power. He, he didn't do miraculous signs. He even says, I baptize with water, water that does not save. And he's saying, this is just water, and I'm just a voice. Yet this singular voice is the very voice of Yahweh to declare the testimony, to declare the witness to reveal first to the nation of Israel, the one who does have position, the one who does have power, the one that does have genealogy, the one who has prophesied, the one who performs miracles, the one who is the only begotten sent by the Father, who is the Lamb of God, who is the Son of God, and the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And best of all, he is here. He is here right now. He is walking among you. You know, you can sense the, the, the baptizer's frustration with these priests and Levites sent out to him. They're kind of like a gaggle of reporters that are interviewing a resident of Pompeii. And they're asking this resident of Pompeii, who are you? And the resident of Pompeii is pointing to them, pointing behind them to the enormous volcano, Mount Vesuvius, that's about to erupt. And he's saying to them, there is something much bigger, much more impactful, that's about to change our world. And John, similarly, he's saying the same thing. He's saying, there's something bigger, there's something more impactful that's about to change the world. Stop asking me who I am. It's not about me. No, no, I am not. I am not. No, no, no. I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Forget about me. He is here. The Messiah is here. He's walking among you. His majesty is so superior, so elevated, that even the lowest duties of the slave, like untying his sandal, is too grand for me. I am unworthy. Now that is the posture of John the Baptist as we start, as we get into our verses 29 to 34, where John the Baptist moves from, he is here on day one to look to him. Look to him. Behold him on day two. So as we follow John the Baptist, we notice what, what makes him so unique and so equally unforgettable is this fantastic combination of stern, unfiltered boldness in the face of God and at the same time absolute humble submission to his Lord to Jesus Christ in his service to to Jesus Christ I mean isn't that why we love him so much because as Matt said today he knows that the only one he's going to stand before is God he has an audience of one so we can picture him on this second day as John the Baptist identifies Jesus Christ in the flesh approaching him. And it's no coincidence that the first person in the whole of the nation of Israel, the first person in the world, to introduce who Simeon declared 30 years prior in, in the temple was going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. It's no coincidence that the first introduction 
comes from the long prophesied forerunner, John the Baptist, the preeminent witness, the only witness Jesus himself would later validate in, in, later in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, as his own witness, as his own forerunner. It reads in, in, John, in John 5, If I alone bear witness about myself, my witness is not true. There's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the witness which he gives me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness I receive is not from man. But I say these things so you may be saved. He was a lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now with that as introduction, let's take up with verse 29, where the gospel writer goes from who is Jesus Christ to why did Jesus Christ come? Verse 29 reads, On the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, that's the trumpet call. To look to him, he says to that gathered crowd. Behold to the nation of Israel. Behold to the world. Look to the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now every Jewish family knew what it meant to possess a lamb. Their lamb each year was personally chosen by the father of the family. And this lamb, without blemish, was to be the sacrifice at the Passover meal. So when John the Baptist says the Lamb of God, referring to a man, the God-man nonetheless, to a Jew, this is shocking on so many levels. To the Jew, a lamb was not just a cuddly pet, but associated with death, was associated with sacrifice, because the blood would be drained, the animal would be skinned and cooked and eaten. So pointing out a man and calling him a lamb was synonymous with marking him for death, for sacrifice. But then to say the man is not only a lamb, but he's the very lamb of God, the metaphor expands. This is the lamb that was personally chosen by who? By God the Father. To die, to be the sacrifice. Not just for a family, for a Passover meal. No, Jesus Christ's sacrifice was the sacrifice that all those Passover sacrifices and every sacrifice pointed forward to. His precious blood spilled was the very blood that every drop of sacrificed blood pointed forward to. And his body given, slumped in death on the cross, was what every limp body of every sacrificed animal pointed forward to. All for what? For the sins of the world. The sins paid for once for all time by the precious Lamb of God. This was the fulfillment of the thousands of lambs and goats and bulls and sheep slaughtered every year in anticipation of this final effectual sacrifice. So it is here that John has revealed to us the great why. Why the eternal God, who is in the beginning with God, who became flesh, who was in the bosom of the Father, And revealed him why he came. He came to die. He came to die. Behold the lamb that came to die. And through his death to save his people from their sins. As Matthew 1 says, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. 
Because there is sin, there must be death. In the garden, the first Adam, because you sinned once, you shall surely die. For the wages of every sin ever committed must be paid for by death. Your death. And it only takes one sin. But here the baptizers are announcing there's another way. A way for death to be defeated. For man to be right before God. And it's not by the law. But rather through a once for all time sacrifice. A sacrifice that all the law and the prophets pointed to. A sacrifice that will satisfy the Father. When the sum of all of our righteous works ever performed could not satisfy Him. He's saying, Behold, hear, O Israel, hear, O nations, now the way to righteousness apart from the law has arrived. That's the announcement. Just as Paul declared in one of the greatest transitions in the book of Romans, but now, this is Romans 3, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Only the Christ, the Messiah, is sufficient, for only God himself is sinless, and only God can forgive sin. So only Christ could be that penal substitute that could make atonement, propitiating the Father. Again, this is a declaration of the deity of Christ. So, and we must be precise here, noting that we are not universalists. For if Christ died for every sin of every man and every woman, including the sin of unbelief, then hell would be empty, wouldn't it? For the wrath for all sin would have already been paid for by Christ on the cross. Many make this mistake. For example, when they read 1 John 2, 2, and it reads, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. They say, See, he died for the sins of the world without exception. But we must use Scripture to interpret Scripture by looking at John 11, where we get an in-depth content, the in-depth context of this more cliff-noted version of 1 John. And John eleven forty nine 49 begins, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. First, the baptizer's message to this hostile contingent sent out by the Pharisees was, He is here. Next, speaking to a gathered group, the message is, Look to Him. The baptizer was a prophet sent not just to Israel, as the previous prophets had, but to the world, in order to gather together a people out of the nations, including Israel, into one body, into one church, the children of God who are His who are scattered everywhere, even beyond the borders of Israel. So finally, providentially, prophetically, this sacrifice secures salvation for those from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. You see, Christ's sacrifice is worldwide sin-bearing. Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. This is the great thesis. This is the great witness statement of John the Baptist that gives us the great why. Why did the Messiah come? Now we'll look at the next four amazing testimonies next from the baptizer that reinforce this message. Starting in verse 30, it reads, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. So how can Jesus Christ be ahead of and exist before John the Baptist? If John the Baptist is six months older than his cousin Jesus, well, only if Jesus Christ is pre-existent, that he is eternal, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, meaning that Jesus can only be superior to his first cousin John if Jesus Christ truly is deity. If Jesus, if Jesus is the Yahweh, that came to earth, that is mentioned in Isaiah 40. Remember Isaiah told John the Baptist, told of John the Baptist being the forerunner for none other than Yahweh, and that Yahweh is in fact Jesus Christ. If you look at, if we look at that again, it reads, a voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the, des- in the desert a highway for our God then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Did you get that? John the Baptist, the voice of Yahweh the Father, preparing the way for the coming of Yahweh the Son in the wilderness. Here we see both the beauty of the unity in the Trinity and the deity of Christ as Yahweh. Second testimony to reinforce John's witness is verse 31. It reads, I did not know him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. How is it that John the Baptist did not know his first cousin so close in age? I mean, there had to be a few family reunions or even those big Jewish weddings that last for a week where they they would cross paths. Well, the answer is John surely knew him in his humanity. But he's saying, I did not know him to be Messiah. I did not know him in his deity. He did not know that Yahweh, though Yahweh to come spoken by Isaiah, was his own first cousin. This had to be a shocker. And this might explain why John repeats this not knowing him two verses later. So the third testimony in verse 32 It reads, And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. It's just amazing how each of these verses, when examined, they contain evidence that so strengthens John's witness. And let's first be clear, it wasn't a dove, but it was like a dove. It, it, uh, It could have been a pigeon. It could have been a sparrow. It could have been a frisbee. But the point is it descended and it remained. It abided on our Lord. Not only was this eyewitness account an affirmation to John of the deity of of his cousin, but God's affirmation to the nation of Israel and the world. Just as Matthew 3 and Luke 3 record when the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Translation, this is my special anointed one anointed by the Holy Spirit. Every Jew knew the Messiah as the anointed one. Every Jew knew Psalm 2, didn't they? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh 
and against his anointed. The word Christ is Christos in the Greek. It is Mashiach in the Hebrew, which means anointed or one who gets anointed with a special commission by God. The Hebrew, as many of you know, for Jesus Christ is Yeshua HaMashiach. In the Old Testament, we see prophets anointed, we see priests anointed, we see kings anointed, all by oil. But here, Christ the Mashiach, he's the better prophet. He's the better priest and he's the better king. And he is anointed, he is chosen and endowed, he is publicly by Yahweh himself in whom he is well pleased. The Holy Spirit coming down from heaven marked this choosing and endowing by Yahweh. Now to the fourth testimony in verse 33. Again, he repeats, And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that John the Baptist already gave the witness to the baptism of Christ in verse 32. But here in verse 33, the baptizer gives us two amazing revelations of that baptism. The first refers to the baptizer's own calling to do the baptizing with water, which came directly from Yahweh himself. So this isn't John's private ministry, but it's an act of God which called John to baptize with water. Now, it's important to point out that the baptism of John is very different from the New Testament God-directed ordinance we call believer's baptism, performed by obedient believers as an outward declaration of an inward transformation to new life. As we identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, John the Baptist himself here tells us why he baptizes, and it's not looking back as the new believer does when they look back to the cross and the burial and the resurrection. This is rather a looking ahead in preparation, getting ready for the coming Messiah. Very different baptism here. In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist tells us, he says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. Water for repentance. So being baptized by John demonstrated a recognition of one's own sin a desire for spiritual cleansing, a commitment to follow God's law in anticipation of the Messiah's arrival. The second amazing revelation from this verse is that the Messiah is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John is saying, I baptize with water that does not save. The Messiah baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That does save. So how does the Messiah baptize with the Holy Spirit? Through the power of the resurrection. Romans 8 records, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us who are baptized with the Holy Spirit. This brings it all together. The Messiah, as the Lamb of God, will be their sacrifice, dying for their sins, taking away their sins, which only God can do as our substitute. And the Messiah will be the baptizer of those same people with the Holy Spirit, regenerating them to new life, which only God can do through His resurrection power. It's all here. He doesn't just pay for our sins, washing us clean, but He raises us to new life 
with an, an imputed righteousness not our own through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So John the, baptism, John the Baptist is foreshadowing how believers are born again right here in John 1 through the baptism of the Holy Spirit by Christ. This is the euangelion. This is the good news of redemption for the vile sinner. And it's available only through the death of the Lamb of God and the resurrection of that Lamb. John, the Gospel writer in the book of Revelation, describes seeing this resurrected Lamb of God. It reads, Then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders a Lamb standing as if slain. Now a slain Lamb could not stand but a resurrected one could. The baptism of the Holy Spirit by the Messiah truly is good news for those sinners who have repented, who have placed all their faith and trust in the sinless Son of God. And I hope and pray that everyone here tonight has been granted that repentance, been granted that faith in Him. But for those of you that have hardened hearts, the Scripture does speak of another baptism for those that don't repent, for those that don't believe. If we read the rest of John the Baptist's statement on why he baptizes with water from Matthew 3, this is what it reads, 3.11. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now let's be clear. The one-time baptism of the Holy Spirit is for believers, but the baptism of fire is for unbelievers when they're thrown into the lake of fire. One baptism is a blessing. The other baptism is a judgment. How do we know this? We know this because we look at the verse prior to verse 11 of Matthew 3 and the verse following verse 11 of Matthew 3, which speaks of this baptism of fire. Both those verses graphically mention the fire of judgment by Yahweh for the unbeliever. Finally, the fifth and final testimony by the baptizer in verse 34 reads, And I myself have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now this is the vital conclusion from the baptizer, the most credible source, the forerunner, the herald, who bridged the great transition from the law of grace, from the law from the age of law to the age of grace. How? By being a voice the voice of God to declare that this is the Son of God. This Messiah is Yahweh, the Son, who takes away the sin of the world by His death. God has made a way not through the law, but by grace. For the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For He is now here, bringing the grace of God, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But this grace, like this age of grace, like the age of the law prior, is only for a time. There is coming a time soon when the bridegroom Christ has gathered his bride so the unbeliever can no longer look to him as Savior. The age of grace will have run its course and all that remains is the fearful expectation of judgment, a judgment of fire, a baptism of fire. Matthew 3 reads, His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
In summary, we've seen in John the Baptist's witness of Jesus Christ to these two groups in Bethany beyond the Jordan to prepare the way for the coming Messiah who's about to begin his public ministry. So this witness went out before the miracle of Cana at the wedding, the cleansing of the temple, before the feeding of the 5,000, before the raising of Lazarus. So the vital question is, did they believe? Did they believe this witness that John the Baptist gave? Did they believe the Messiah had arrived to save Israel? Did they, in fact, look to him? Well, many did, as we will see next week. But most did not. The masses did not. Why? Well, think about the spiritual state of Israel. They were stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart. They were not in need of repentance. They did not need a physician. There's no need of repentance when you're already the most righteous. You see, Israel at this time was the height of legalism, codifying and enforcing the Mosaic law, the priesthood, the sacrifices, as well as an extra 613 ordinances that were added to the Torah that smothered the nation with legalism, making captive a people to a spiritual death spiral, a death spiral of the law, the sin, sacrifice. Law, sin, sacrifice. Law, sin, sacrifice. Israel was a trained people to do the external work necessary to try and please God. And as oppressive as this cycle of legalism was, it was at the same time a pride factory producing self-righteous men and women who had no capacity to examine their own hearts. So it was much easier to do more and more good works than to change internally by repenting of their sin, the sin that angers God. The ritual of works then becomes self-pleasing. It's showy. It feeds the flesh. It makes you feel good, like you're doing something for God. But true repentance is none of that. Repentance feels like your life is being turned inside out. It is a wrenching, pride-swallowing affair that produces a precious, broken, and contrite heart that he will not despise. That is a heart that pleases God. It is those hearts, the broken hearts, the Messiah came to heal. It is those hearts the Messiah came to save, not the proud hearts. The proud hearts wanted nothing to do with this coming Messiah. The only Messiah they were looking for was the one that would throw off the shackles of the Roman oppression. They were looking for a Jewish conquering king who would bring worldwide dominance, not a lamb that would bring worldwide sin-bearing. So when John the Baptist brings his witness to Israel, that number one, the Messiah was not a conquering king, but Yahweh's sacrificial lamb. And number two, by the way, the sacrificial lamb was not just for Israel, but to be slaughtered for the world. And number three, that slaughtered lamb is Yahweh, the very Son of God, who isn't riding in, leading a great procession. He's walking among you. He is the son of Joseph, of Nazareth. And by the way, he is here. Look to him. Behold him, the son of God. And what results? There's no stampede. There's no revival. There's no mass conversions. 
Israel sadly would follow the message of Isaiah as they keep on hearing, but not understand, and keep on seeing, but do not know. So largely their response to the baptizer's herald, here he is, look to him, is met largely by Jewish people, by the Jewish people with indifference. Just like today, when the gospel is proclaimed, but we should not be discouraged or deterred. Just like John the Baptist was not discouraged or deterred, for the Messiah continues to gather his own today that he is seeking, that will respond to the call. He is here. Look to him. Just as the Messiah gathered his own, starting in Bethany beyond the Jordan, then in Galilee, and then Bethsaida, and then Cana, and on and on for the church that he began building then, he is still building today, and even the gates of hell will not stop it. And this will involve drawing in his people, not just to look to him, but willing to die to self, pick up their cross, and follow him which is what we're going to take up with next week when we take up with the next verses on the third day with John the Baptist. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are uh, so blessed by this word, by the scripture. We believe this witness of John the Baptist, Lord, that he is the the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that he is the Son of God. Lord, we we are... impressed upon us, Lord, of our sin that we have and that you have made a way through the Lamb. And Lord, we put all our faith and trust in him. And Lord, we are so thankful that you've revealed this word to us tonight. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.